Can you lead the forces of your house to ultimate victory on Arrakis? Well, let's find out with Dune 2 this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 45 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, back with you once again, a little sooner than uh, than usual with part two of, uh, of the Dune show. I'm really excited to be here. What I thought was going to be two shorter shows ended up being two uh, regular shows. This one promises to be uh, quite long as well, uh, trying to keep the energy level up. Uh, I'm not feeling super great right now which uh which isn't all that good because uh next week i'll be traveling for work and then the week after that i'll be out west skiing so uh i hope i get over whatever this uh this little ailment is that uh that's that's got a hold of me right now so uh if if at some point i get a little weird or low energy or something like that uh i do apologize but uh we will uh we will push on through because i'm excited to get to the second part of the dune show now before that a little bit of news uh, since only a week and a bit has passed as opposed to the uh, usual two and a bit weeks uh, between shows. There isn't a ton, but there's two little items here. Uh, first one is uh, an article from PC World by Hayden Dingman, and uh, he got the chance to try out uh, the early beta of Steam's game streaming service. Uh, he kind of ran through a couple of examples and a couple of situations. So in, in one of his examples, he streamed Assassin's Creed 4, which is a new game from this year, or maybe last year. Anyways, Assassin's Creed 4. No, it's from 20, no, 2013. Anyways, it's a new game. Uh, so he streamed Assassin's Creed 4 to an old 2006 MacBook. That's one of the uh, white plastic MacBooks, not the, the fancy titanium MacBooks. So that was sort of his major test of kind of like not really, uh, you know, streaming to something that's really old, basically... He writes it effectively for for this day and age doesn't have a video card or a 3D card. And, uh, you know, he did other he streamed other games to more powerful, more modern laptops. And uh, overall, he says it worked quite well for a beta. And, uh, you know, despite a couple of uh, setup issues, uh, I'm incredibly interested in seeing how this shakes out. This is the thing that really excites me about uh, Steam and the Steam OS. It's not you know, getting games out for Linux, which is all well and good. But what I want to do is take my entire Steam library and, you know, play any of those games that I want on on my TV with my couch. There's a bunch of games I'd love to play with my wife and things like that. But, uh, you know, we're not going to to huddle in front of the PC and uh, and play together. So if there's any way that I can uh, I can play some really great PC games, be they old or new, uh, sitting back on my couch with uh, either, a, you know, a cheap laptop or my MacBook or a little box that I build or a Steam machine, full out Steam machine or not, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it. So as always, I'll, I'll keep the Steam Machine stuff rolling. Next, uh, you may remember a while ago, I talked about a mobile version of Dungeon Keeper, kind of a remake coming out of Electronic Arts. Well, it's out. And graphically, it looks nice. Uh, the big hiccup, as I'm sure many of you are aware, comes with uh, the gameplay model. So EA 
decided to go free to play on this one and uh, they really stick the screws to you if you don't want to pony up any cash for this game. Uh, Your minions need to clear out stone blocks so you can build out your dungeon. Well, clearing a block can take hours unless you rush things by dropping real cash on special tokens. I can't quite remember what the tokens are called. It's, you know, basically like coins or smurf berries or something like that. Uh, so apparently without paying the paying uh, for the, for these tokens, the game is pretty much unplayable. I'll still give this a whirl, but every article I read and every listener I talk to tells me that this is a stinker. And, you know, that truly makes me sad because Dungeon Keeper deserves much better. Okay, so before we get on to things, I did get an email, and it is from Elima slash Emily, and she writes, Hello, Joe. Love the first part of the Dune episode. It was quite a treat. Loved hearing the clips of the music from your Roland MT-32. They sounded really great. And the choice of Spice Opera as an outro. Uh, I also learned tons of info in your dev story, so that's always a bonus. I became intrigued when you mentioned the controversy surrounding Philip Ulrich's album Le Roi du Gasoil. Uh, a little digging revealed that it was censored and completely banned from the airwaves as it was judged too subversive, a menace to public order. I found the album on YouTube, and the lyrics do seem to speak of controversial subjects, at least for 1979, including arms trafficking, the evils of capitalism, and strong sexual themes. Uh, at least from what I heard, it's not my style, and I only stuck around for a couple of minutes. And now for the nitpicking part, which I apologize for in advance, but as a diehard Dune fan, I just can't help myself. I did warn you. You mentioned blue on blue eyes, but the eyes of the Ibad are typically described as blue within blue in the books. Both the iris and the cornea get a bluish tinge when a person has been consuming spice or melange for a while. Many people beyond Arrakis become addicted to spice, namely the guild navigators, or use its properties as an awareness spectrum narcotic, again, the guild, but also the Bene Gesserit, and uh, hide those blue within blue eyes with contact lenses. You mentioned that Lady Jessica was a Bene Gesserit priestess, and I'll admit I cringed a bit at that word. More than a religion, the Bene Gesserit are a political force. Although their hierarchy does use religious terms, Mother Superior, Reverend Mother, Sister, uh, the Bene Gesserit aim to gain power and influence through less conventional means, and uh, all sisters are trained in various techniques tailored to their talents. All techniques include a great physical and mental discipline with extremely fine-tuned control of mind and body. Abilities include mastery of martial arts, altering blood flow, body temperature, heart rate, and level of consciousness, influencing people, and sensing the truth. The, through these strengths, the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood established itself as a formidable force in the Imperium, mediating disputes, overseeing negotiations, and training daughters of noble houses. I won't get into their breeding program, but their services were highly sought after. Most, if not all, major noble houses counted a few Bene Gesserit in their ranks. I've always admired the Bene Gesserit. Can you tell? Smiley face. Regarding the construction of the wind traps, they aren't a source of power so much as they're a source of water. Well, in the first game, they're a source of water. They capture the moisture in the cooler night air, and the water then trickles down. In the RTS Dune game, the wind traps are indeed a source of power, but in the books, they capture water. Finally, about charisma in the first game, the numerical value is available, and it's absolutely crucial. A certain event is required to advance Paul's powers, not to finish the game per se, and not to be too spoilery, but if you haven't hit 50, you will die. 
The charisma can be seen when you click on the see results in the globe mode of the map, where you can also save, load, restart, which means you don't have to go back to the mirror in the palace every time, but I think I already told you that. That view is also useful to see spice stocks, rate of spice production, and territory controlled by both factions, Atreides, and Harkonnen. Anyhow, sorry for the huge email. Feel free to edit or not read at all. Uh, I know I sound incredibly whiny, but still, I really, really enjoyed the Dune episode. Already when you announced it, I got a hankering to replay Dune, and this first part tipped me over the edge. Pile be damned, I'm on my second playthrough. I used to be able to finish it in 50 game days as a child, managed 60 on this more recent playthrough, and then 47 on another. Take care, and thanks for all the hard work, Emily, a.k.a. Alima. Well, thank you, Alima, for for that. and I think I, I was about to respond to you, but I figured I'd just say it here. I'd be sending the exact same email to someone who did a who did a show on uh, on on BattleTech or on Star Wars or on another universe where where you know I know it like the back of my hand and I love it. And uh, you know I know getting these little things wrong is uh, would would drive me nuts too. So thanks for for pointing that out. And and I I promise I'm boning up my my Dune lore knowledge. I did start reading the novel. I know last time around I said I had some trouble getting through it, but uh, I'm doing pretty well now. I'm ignoring the weird uh, language stuff and the, uh, and things like that. So, uh, so thank you. Great, great, great information. I love all this backstory stuff. I love learning more about the universes that these games take place in. So keep it up. I don't edit, you know, unless you're doing weird stuff and going on for pages and pages and pages. I don't edit emails. You guys take the time to write into me. I will take the time to read what you write. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, no time to waste. Let's get to the beat of the show. Part two of our Dune coverage. This time, we're moving past the quote-unquote first game, and we're going to focus on what is generally hailed as the more popular Dune game, Dune 2, The Building of a Dynasty, or its alternate name, Dune 2, Battle for Arrakis. Like the first game, it was published by Virgin Interactive, However, it was developed by Westwood Studios. Like the first game by Cryo we talked about last time, it also released in the year 1992. So let's get to genre, uh, where the first Dune was a hybrid of adventure and strategy. Dune 2 is much more straightforward. It is a real-time strategy game. In fact, it is widely considered to be the primordial real-time strategy game, introducing many of the mechanics and tropes that we know in modern RTSs like, you know, StarCraft 2 and, uh, you know, Total Annihilation and things like that. So we discussed this a bit in the last show, but let's be thorough. A real-time strategy game places the player in command of a group of units, generally military in nature. Because your units are military, your objectives generally are as well. Objectives can be as straightforward as eliminating all enemy units or structures on the map, to holding a fixed position, to making your way across a map with a limited number of units, all the way to complex, multi-stage, story-driven missions with branching events and varying objectives. Aside from military units, you are usually also tasked with maintaining a base consisting of specialized buildings. These buildings allow the generation of additional units, the ability to upgrade said units, and most importantly, the ability to generate money. In addition, there are utility buildings, defensive structures, much, much, much more. Of course, all these buildings and units aren't free. Almost all modern real-time strategy games introduce the concept of resource gathering. This could consist of a single resource or multiple resources with different buildings and units requiring different mixes of resources. Finally, 
we have the real-time part of real-time strategy. All this stuff, creating units, buildings, fighting enemies, resource gathering, and everything else takes place in real time. There's no sitting and mindfully considering your options. You've got to act lest your enemy acts and builds faster than you do. Suffice it to say, this can definitely make things a little bit hectic. And we can say a lot more about RTS games, but let's move on and we'll cover more gameplay when we start talking about Dune 2 specifically. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, story time. So, as we did with the first game, uh, we find ourselves once again immersed in Frank Herbert's Dune universe. Unlike the first game, however, we seem to be living much more in the universe of the novel and not quite as much the universe of the film. Uh, in the intro, the world is described to us through a series of animated scenes. The subtitles of each scene are as follows. The planet Arrakis, known as Dune. Land of Sand. Home of the Spice Melange. The Spice controls the Empire. Whoever controls Dune controls the Spice. The Emperor has proposed a challenge to each of the houses. The house that produces the most Spice will control Dune. There are no set territories and no rules of engagement. Vast armies have arrived. Now three houses fight for control of Dune. The noble Atreides, the insidious Ordos, and the evil Harkonnen. Only one house will prevail. Your battle for Dune begins now. So this is what the intro tells us, and it seems fairly innocuous. However, if you read the game manual, there's a lot more to this, as there tends to be in the Dune universe. So the current emperor, Frederick IV of House Carino, uh, had been previously removed from the throne by his brother during uh, what are known as the Years of Treason. Now, Frederick managed to overthrow his brother and retake the throne. However, in doing so, he incurred a vast debt to the powerful Merchants Guild. Because of this, he is very, very anxious to harvest as much spice as possible from Arrakis. To encourage maximum spice extraction, he offers control of the planet to one of the three houses that were mentioned in the intro, the Atreides, the Ordos, and the Harkonnen. The winner, that is the one that shipped the most spice, would govern the planet and gain a share of the tax revenue, making them incredibly rich. Of course, the Emperor's true intentions may not be as straightforward as even this description, but we'll have to play the game to find that out. Before we do that, though, you may have noted that while the basic story is the same between this game and the first, the writers on Dune 2 seem to have changed the Emperor's name from Shaddam IV to uh, Frederick IV. Uh, this is, you know, Shaddam is what he was called in the book and the movie and, and the first game, and they changed him over to Frederick. Uh, this name is only used in the Westwood games, and from a lore perspective, he's basically the same guy. All right, time for some gameplay. So, entering the game, the first thing we have to do is choose which house we will be. Unlike the first game, where we had no choice but to be the Atreides, here we can be anyone. And this decision does in fact have a large effect on gameplay as each house has its own strengths and weaknesses. Choosing a house brings you to what is known as the Bene Gesserit screen. Uh, the Bene Gesserit are a powerful social, religious, and political force in the universe, as, uh, as Elima told us in, in her email. Uh, they will provide an outline of each house. To break it down, 
on a very kind of superficial level, the Atreides are upright and honorable, the Ordos are deceptive and underhanded, and the Harkonnen are just savage and evil. Choose as you will. Once you choose a house, you're introduced to your Mentat. A Mentat is basically a very well-educated and wise advisor. Your Mentat provides you advice, information, and your mission briefings throughout the game. Our first mission is fairly simple. No matter which house you choose, your goal is the same. Gather spice. So our first mission is to gather 1,000 credits worth of spice. How do we do this, you ask? Simple. We need to build a base with a refinery. Uh, You start off with three soldiers, three trikes, and a construction yard. Uh, The trikes are exactly what they sound like. Light, three-wheeled vehicles that are slightly more robust than your soldiers. Uh, For this first mission... This, uh, this current force are, is more than sufficient for base defense against the paltry opposing forces kind of uh, standing around in the mission. So even though it isn't required, I can't help personally but send a trike or two out to explore the map. Doing so starts to lift what uh, has traditionally become known as the Fog of War. So the entire map, aside from the area immediately surrounding your base, is black. Sending a unit over to the black areas reveals the terrain underneath along with any enemy units or buildings that are hidden there. This game was actually the first to introduce the concept of Fog of War, and uh, we can see that it's still not quite in its final form. In more modern RTS games, uh, the Fog of War is lifted to reveal the underlying terrain, and stays uncovered as long as you have a friendly unit in its vicinity. If that unit moves off or is destroyed, the fog rolls back in. You still see the uncovered terrain, however, it's now simply a snapshot of what it looked like last time you had a unit there. In Dune 2, this isn't the case. Once you've uncovered the Fog of War, you can see anything that happens there, unit or no unit nearby. Another major difference you'll quickly notice between Dune 2 and follow-on games is the handling of units. In the, shall we say, next generation of RTSs, if you wanted to move multiple units, you could simply click and drag a box around them or shift-click to select multiple units. Not so in Dune 2. In this earlier game, you can only select a single unit at a time. You want five soldiers to attack something? You've got to select each one individually and instruct them to attack. Also, they aren't very smart in as much as they don't have very good pathfinding. You want a soldier to attack a unit on the other side of a building? Well, you better send him around the building in move mode, or he'll just stand around not attacking anything like a moron. Also, at least in my research session, which you can go check out on YouTube, some units get a little bit carried away in attack mode. That is, they'll attack a designated enemy unit, but once that unit's destroyed, they'll also carry on and attack anything nearby, including allies. I almost lost a trike to another one of my trikes in uh, in my first mission. So, fog of war and units aside, we still have an objective, as I said before, to gather 1,000 credits worth of spice. That means we need to build some buildings. Now, there's a few types of terrain on Arrakis which affect your building locations. Firstly, we have sand. You can't build on sand. It's too loose and there is constant danger of sandworm attacks when you are on it. Secondly, there are mountains. You can't build or even traverse mountains. Finally, we have rocky terrain. This is our safe place. We can build on it and stand on it without fear of sandworms eating us. So we start building. Like any good building, we need to start with a good foundation in the form of concrete slabs. 
Best practice in the game is to place one concrete slab per map square that your new building will take up. This is optional, but if you don't do it, your buildings will steadily deteriorate since they've been built on a weak foundation. Aside from concrete, the first thing we are allowed to build is a wind trap. This is basically a power plant, at least in this game, uh, that will furnish us with what is referred to as 100 units of power. Clicking it starts its building process. When it completes, we can drop it onto the four square area of concrete we previously put down. I also should note that in Dune 2, all of your buildings need to be touching each other. So you can't place, uh, you can't have your construction yard and then place your uh, power plant some distance away. It has to be, your whole base has to be, have edges touching other edges of other buildings in your base. So we plop the power plant or the wind trap, sorry, on the four square area of concrete and uh, the wind trap builds immediately. Now we have the option finally to build our refinery. It costs 400 credits. Luckily, we still have around 600 credits of our initial pool of 1,000. Once the refinery is built, a harvester is delivered via carry-all. Again, very little in this game is automated. The harvester will sit in its berth until you explicitly tell it to go and harvest spice in a nearby spice field, which is indicated by kind of orange stuff on the ground. This happens every time the harvester returns to drop its cargo at the refinery. Uh, once it comes back and it's done, it drops off. You again need to point it to a spice field and set it to work. And it's quite easy, I found, to forget about it if you're involved in a battle on the other side of the map. If that happens, you're not making any money and you can't replenish your forces and you might get yourself in a little bit of trouble. So once your harvester is out, your only real job is to basically wait for it to finish and defend it with uh, it and your base uh, against a few enemy soldiers. If you're playing the Atreides, like I was, because I like being the good guys, uh, you're pitted against the Ordos for this uh, first mission. They are represented by green units. Atreides are represented by blue, and Harkonnen, because they're mean, are represented by red. So you soon gather a thousand credits, and the mission ends. We move to the debriefing, where we're told of our losses, and more importantly, how much spice we've mined. Uh, we see the same for the enemy and uh, anyone else who's involved in the, uh, in the mission. We then move to the map screen where we get to choose which territory we will be conquering next. This doesn't have any major impact on uh, the next mission aside from determining which house you will face in that follow-on mission. So the first mission is a good introduction to the game, but it is not incredibly typical. In fact, the first and second missions are the only two in the game where the goal is to gather a certain amount of spice. The rest of the missions require you to defeat all enemies on the map. You have to win a total of nine territories to gain control of Dune. As you progress through the game, uh, you're obviously going to unlock more powerful units up until the top tier, though. These units are all basically the same. Uh, the exception to this is the Ordos Raider Trike. Uh, it has less armor than trikes from the other two houses, but it's also much faster. However, when you build up to the heavy vehicle factory, this is when you really start getting into the customization of between the individual houses. The Atreides get the Sonic Tank, which is a relatively quick tank that uses uh, sound waves to destroy enemies. The Harkonnen get the Devastator, which is a very slow heavy tank with dual 190mm guns. This is the deadliest single unit in the game. The Ordos gain access to a support unit known as the Deviator. So not the Devastator, this is the Deviator. Slightly similar naming, but 
different enough so that we understand. Uh, the Deviator fires a missile filled with nerve gas, which confuses enemy units and temporarily changes their allegiance to, uh, I want to say to your side, but it's actually very specifically the side of the Ordos, and that allows you, if you are the Ordos, to control them. Eventually, you'll also be able to occupy what is known as a house palace. This palace becomes your main command center and also offers some additional customized uh, abilities. The palace allows the Atreides to summon local Fremen infantry squads. Uh, They're very, very powerful, but the downside is that uh, they're not actually under your direct control. They do their own thing. The Ordos can summon the Saboteur, which can immediately destroy any unit or structure at the cost of its own life. Finally, the Harkonnen have access to the Death Hand Missile, a large and inaccurate support missile which spreads damage over a very large area. So I already discussed the AI a little bit. Uh, However, a few more points need to be made about it. Uh, Fans have looked at the source code for the game, and apparently the AI system was actually really quite good. Uh, It appears that uh, the way it was scripted into the actual missions led to kind of the janky behaviors we ended up with. As implemented, the enemy AI will only ever make direct assaults on your base, so it can't ever go around, come from behind, try and flank. It just goes, makes straight beeline for your base and attacks from one direction. I, I noticed this very clearly in, uh, in I think, the second mission in my playthrough where I had a bunch of soldiers just kind of sitting in one spot and like one or two Ordo soldiers would just keep kind of plinking one at a time and I would just take my 10 soldiers and shoot them and kill them. Uh, also... Many units won't react to uh, what we call a changing situation. Say a tank is tasked with attacking your base, but you're in the middle of its base attacking it, it'll pass you right by, or in fact even go right around you in accordance with its original orders to go and attack your base. So stuff isn't as dynamic as, uh, as say, it could be. There's much more to talk about here gameplay-wise, such as you know things like your infantry unit's ability to capture enemy buildings, the danger of leaving units unattended on open sand for fear of being eaten by sandworms, which I kind of mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of fun gameplay here. It's, it's really quite varied, but uh, yeah, I guess that, that will do to give you a basic idea of things. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Dune 2 required at least a 386, 16 megahertz, and a grand total of 3 megs of RAM. Also, while it didn't require a mouse to run, it would certainly be incredibly awkward to play it without one. Graphically, the game ran in 320 by 200 VGA at 256 colors. The game was displayed in a top-down 2D view. And uh, all sprites, aside from, I guess, the infantry soldiers, were fairly large and easy to select. As I mentioned in the last section, each house's units were defined by their color, which made figuring out who the enemy was pretty easy. Different color from you, blow them up. 
An aspect of the graphics that I always did enjoy, though, were how your units would leave appropriate tracks in the sand as they kind of traversed across it. Now, they eventually faded, which was probably uh, appropriate in the wind-blowed sands of Arrakis, though I'm sure they did it for performance reasons. A little immersive things like that make me really, really happy. Aside from the graphics, though, the music and the sound played a very important role in Dune 2. Dune 2's music was composed by Frank Klepacki, who I talked about very much or very in-depth in the uh, CNC episode, as he would also go on to create the soundtrack for Command & Conquer. So born in 1974 in Las Vegas, Klepacki was destined to be a musician. Both his parents were musicians playing the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, He did some drawing on the side, but music quickly took up all of his time. At eight years old, he received a drum set, and by 11, he was performing professionally. Uh, Through his teens, he formed quite a few bands, mastered different instruments, and recorded many, many demo tapes using his Tascam 4-track cassette recorder. Around the age of 17, he started learning some basic, and uh, he took an interest in video games. He would soon apply to Westwood Studios to be a game tester. To make his application stand out, he included a demo tape, which uh, made it to Westwood's audio director. Upon listening to it, they immediately hired the 17-year-old as a composer, where he worked on a few games, uh, including the NES port of Dragon Strike and Eye of the Beholder 2. His first lead composer opportunity, though, came with Dune 2. Here he used MIDI to try and create original music inspired by and complementary to the music of the film. According to Klepacki, uh, he pushed the MIDI sequencer on his Amiga as far as it would go on this project. Klepacki composed the music on uh, an MT32. However, the game would be one of the first to also support Roland's new sound canvas device and thus would sound about the same on just about any device that supported the general MIDI standard. Though, because the score was originally composed on the MT32, both devices sounded fairly identical when playing the music from the game. Now, the big gotcha here came with digital sound. Dune 2 started using the new uh, DAC, or digital-to-analog converter, found on Sound Blaster cards to play sound effects and digitize speech. So instead of simply displaying text like enemy approaching or harvester destroyed, a digital speech clip would be played. Originally, the game shipped with a setup program that allowed you to select different devices for digital sound, music, and speech, so you had those three options. This way, if you had a Roland device, you would have great MT32 or general MIDI music, and you could use the Sound Blaster for speech and sound effects. The problem with this was that this setup requires you to have 621 kilobytes of conventional memory available. That thrust Dune 2 way into boot disk territory. So to make the game easier to run on more machines, the setup program was simplified to only allow a single audio device to be selected. This lowered the required conventional memory, and uh, if you only had a single audio device, which I know I did, for example, I never had more than one, uh, it didn't make a ton of difference to you. However, if you were badass and you had, say, a Sound Blaster and an MT32 SC55 or LAPC1, which is kind of the internal card version of the MT32, you'd have to choose. Did you want to have the digital speech and the crappy Sound Blaster FM synthesis music or forego the speech completely and stick with the much better MT32 or GM music? 
Uh, eventually, Westwood would release the original multi-hardware setup tool as a patch, but initially, uh, people who spent the money on high-end MIDI hardware were somewhat upset about it. Okay, time for the dev story. Dune 2 is the brainchild of the same man we discussed back in the CNC episode, Brett Sperry. Now, Westwood was created in 1985 by Sperry and his friend Louis Castle. Or maybe it's Louis Castle, I don't know. I'll go with Louis. Uh, so they started this in a garage in Las Vegas. This was the same year that the NES released in North America and triggered a resurgence in video gaming. Initially, they did a lot of contract work, porting games from 8-bit to 16-bit platforms. Uh, They eventually, though, moved into development of their own games. Their first game, an RPG named Mars Saga, was released in 1988 under Electronic Arts. Uh, The game was rushed to production to meet the 1988 release date and thus wasn't entirely complete. Uh, There were skill sets in the game that were entirely useless as the puzzles that they were meant to solve were never created. It released for the C64, the Apple II, and for DOS. Not to be deterred, though, by EA's pressure, they proceeded to complete the undone portions of the game, fix any bugs, and re-release it in 89 as Minds of Titan. The revised game reviewed very well and received high praise. They then moved into a direction that we might recognize as leading a little bit to Dune 2. Uh, Battletech, the Crescent Hawk's Revenge, was a video game take on the FAZA Battletech tabletop game that I was at then and still am a huge fan of. Uh, This was a real-time tactics game that left the player the ability to temporarily pause the action to assess his or her situation and plan accordingly. Crescent Hawk released in 1990 to good success as well. Now, since we're in 1990, this brings us back to the beginning of the Dune Saga that we talked about last week. Around 1989, Virgin, I guess the president of Virgin, named Martin Alper, if I remember correctly, uh, wanted to make a Dune game. They had their initial meetings with the guys at Cryo, they got the license, and they let things roll, as, as we discussed. However, soon enough, Virgin Interactive Management decided the Cryo Dune game was not on schedule and not meeting expectations, and it should be cancelled. Virgin VP Stephen Clark Wilson was given the task of figuring out what should be done with the license now. To do this, he decided he would sit down and read the novel. He did this even though, as I learned in further research, Virgin President Martin Alper had actually only secured the rights to the Dune movie and not the rights to Herbert's novel. Despite this, he finished the novel, and uh, after he was done, he came away with an idea. In his mind, the real stress of the story wasn't the trials and the tribulations of Paul and his family. It was much bigger than that. It was the battle to control the spice. Around the same time, 
Another familiar face was working at Virgin Interactive, another guy we've talked about in the past, Graham Devine. You may remember him as one of the eventual founders of Trilobite and the creator of The Seventh Guest. Well, at this time, he was still with Virgin along with Alper, and uh, he was still he, he was very, very interested in a little game on the Sega Mega Drive called Herzog's Way. Now, Herzog's Way is an interesting game. It's sort of an early proto-RTS. In it, you pilot a flying, transforming mech, kind of sort of like a Valkyrie fighter from Macross or Robotech, if you know those. Uh, That is, it transforms into either a plane for fast travel or a humanoid robot for combat. Via this mech, you purchase other units, which you personally airlift onto the battlefield and issue rudimentary orders to, such as patrol, garrison, capture base, stuff like that. It's sort of an RTS game where you don't really have a global view of the battlefield. Now, Clark Wilson would watch Divine, or Divine? 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 Let's say Divine. (laughs) Bad with names. Okay, so Clark would watch Divine and uh, other people in the office play the game. Uh, apparently, and actually not apparently because I watched a gameplay video, uh, the game was somewhat confusing to a casual observer. To Clark, it just looked like you clicked on things and then zoomed over to another part of the screen, moved around, did some other stuff. But despite this apparent confusion, the game was fast-paced, action-packed, and everyone seemed to be having fun with it. Also, amidst the action, there was a strategy element in selecting your units and where you would deploy them. Clark decided his Dune strategy game would use Herzog's Way as inspiration. Since Virgin's goal at the time, or read Martin Elper's goal at the time, was for Virgin Interactive to become the next Sierra Online, uh, they had planned to go and visit a developer that was currently doing a Sierra game. The game they were going to check out was Legend of Carandia, published by Sierra and developed by a little company called Westwood Studios. So he grabbed one of his senior producers, Seth Mendelson, who understood Herzog's way and went to Vegas to see the Carandia demo. It was great. Demo was wonderful. They loved the game. And, uh, but then they quickly moved on to discussions of their potential Dune game. I can only assume Brett Sperry was involved in this discussion and they quickly agreed, the Westwood guys quickly agreed, to build Clark's game with Herzog's way as inspiration. Of course, this whole deal was agreed to with the understanding that the cryo version of Dune was cancelled. Well, apparently, Martin Alper had either consciously decided not to tell the cryo team that the game was cancelled, or he had just forgotten to do it. Well, the next time a deliverable arrived from the cryo team from France, word went out that the game was cancelled, and cryo went on the offensive, as we discussed, going to media and all that stuff. So I'm not sure if all this stuff was actually known to Sperry and the rest of the Westwood team, but they went ahead and started making their game. Sperry explains that while Herzog's Way was uh, offered to him as a base to start from, and he did think it was a fun game, it didn't have a ton of impact on his Dune game. From a design standpoint, one of his big inspirations was the world map aspects of Populous, plus his previous work on Eye of the Beholder. But the real inspiration came from a discussion with Chuck Corgill, who was vice president at Strategic Simulations, Inc., which was a big publisher of war games at the time. Sperry felt that war games of kind of the late 80s and the early 90s weren't any good. They were not innovative, they were poorly designed, and frankly, they were slow and dull. He felt the war game was in a slow decline. Despite that, 
He thought the genre had a lot of potential in it. It just had to be brought out by the right designer, which I assume he figured was him. So with the Dune license in his hand and the mandate to build a strategy game, Sperry took it on as a personal challenge to revitalize the genre of wargaming. He wanted to harness the real-time dynamics of a game like Herzog's Way, but with a much more compelling interface. For this interface, Sperry and his team didn't look to other existing games, but to operating systems. In particular, the operating system of the Apple Macintosh. He liked the idea of being able to point and click with a mouse. If it could be done in the environment outside of the game, why shouldn't it be done within the game as well? So while the game was playable with a keyboard, it was truly optimized for use with a mouse. The flexibility and precision it offered allowed for quick orders to individual units on the fly. In fact, the mouse is what really made the RTS genre possible. So all this was going on, everything was going great, but early in 1992, it was made clear that Cryo's Dune game would not be cancelled and actually had been rushed into release and finished before the Westwood version of Dune. Sperry was told by Virgin that the name of his game had to be changed. Despite his protests, the Cryo game was named Dune because it came out first, and his game had the somewhat confusing name of Dune 2 assigned to it. Despite this last-minute bump, Dune 2 released for DOS in 1992 and for the Amiga in 1993. It rated very highly and sold many, many copies. It also ended up being credited as the defining the genre of real-time strategy games. It would serve as the basis for its spiritual successor, Command and & Conquer, and even for games like Warcraft, which took the basic concepts defined in Dune 2 and expanded on them with more game modes, narrative, and newer technology. Despite all this incredible success... A direct sequel for Dune 2, though, wouldn't come until 1998. The planet Arrakis, known as Dune. Land of sand, home of the spice melange. The spice controls the universe. Whoever controls Dune controls the spice. The Emperor has proposed a challenge to each of the houses. The house which produces the most spice controls Dune. There are no set territories, no rules of engagement. Vast armies have arrived. Now three houses fight for control of Dune. The noble Atreides. The insidious Ordos. The evil Harkonnen. Only one house will prevail. So Dune 2000 was developed by Westwood and wasn't so much a sequel as it was a modern remake. Graphics and some gameplay were updated, and uh, FMV cutscenes were added. John Rice Davies played Atreides Mentat Nori Mo Monio? Nori Monio. <laughs> More Dune names. Uh, Nancy Vallon, probably best known for her role on Baywatch, was cast as a Fremen named Carrie. Uh, they're probably the two best known actors in the game. 
The music was again composed by Frank Klepacki and was put out as a soundtrack CD named Dune 2000 Long Live the Fighters. The game was also quite moddable, and though the mod community isn't incredibly active at the moment, uh, there's quite a few new campaigns and high-res mods available for the game to this day. Despite all this, the game only had middling success at release. Uh, It was felt it lacked a certain polish expected of RTSs in 1998, not to mention it came out the same year as Blizzard StarCraft, one of the most popular RTSs of all time. Finally, a few years later, in 2001, we got Emperor Battle for Dune. This was finally the first direct sequel to both Dune 2 and Dune 2000. Know then that the first great spice war on the planet Arrakis has ended. The Emperor Carino is dead, poisoned by his concubine, the Lady Ilara. Now, a new war rages for the control of the Golden Lion Throne. A great civil war between the noble houses of the Lansrad. Only three houses remain with the resources and ability to seize control of the throne. The noble Atreides, the insidious Ordos, the evil Harkonnen. All three are evenly poised. All three are equally committed. All three know that the key to victory lies on a vast, barren, waterless world. Arrakis, home of the most precious substance in the known universe. The spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. The spice is vital to space travel. A new war begins. Each of the three great houses must attempt to gain the majority of occupied territories on the planet. Who controls Arrakis controls the Spice. And who controls the Spice controls the universe. So this game is set shortly after the events of Dune 2000. The Emperor's been killed by his concubine, and the Landsrad, which is uh, the assembly of all the noble houses, is in chaos. The Spacing Guild presents the same three houses at the end of this whole deal uh, with a challenge, a war of assassins. This time around, the winner will not only control Dune, but their leader will become Emperor of the Known Universe. Each house has a different storyline through the single-player campaign. Also, based on decisions made in the course of the game, you can become allied or pitted against other factions such as the Fremen, the Sardaukar, who are the Emperor's personal guard, uh, the Spacing Guild, and more. You can also interact with smugglers, which may be a nod to the original Cryo game. This game is much bigger than the previous two and features a full 3D engine known as W3D or Westwood 3D. Uh, Music was also expanded with a different composer for each campaign. Frank Klepacki did uh, the Atreides arc, David Arkenstone did the Harkonnen music, you may recognize him from his work on World of Warcraft and Lands of Lore, amongst other things, and uh, finally the Ordos campaign was scored by Jared Mendelsohn. Again, the soundtrack was put out on a music CD, which came with the pre-order of the game. 
They also kicked up the actors a notch with uh, Michael Dorn, Vincent Schiavelli, Nicholas Wirth, and Mike McShane, starring amongst others. Overall, Emperor was a good game that reviewed well. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So, where can we play Dune 2 and its sequels today? Well, I had to grab the original off of some Abandonware site since I do like playing things in their original form. Uh, however, you can play it in your browser by going to play-dune.com. This is the complete single-player game for all three houses. Uh, it also offers an Android version via the Google Play Store, which I didn't get a chance to try because I don't own an Android device. As for Dune 2000... Uh, BJ actually, listener BJ, pointed out a cool fan project to me on the Facebook group. Uh, it's called OpenRA. Now, this is a free and open source engine recreation, which allows players to re-experience old Westwood RTSs, including quite a few of the CNC games and Dune 2000. If you go over to their site or Google, Total Biscuit actually does a really good uh, review of OpenRA, and uh, it seems pretty cool. There are some issues like not being able to place concrete under buildings, but uh, it's under very active development, so it definitely bears keeping an eye on. The UIs are all cleaned up, the engine supports current machines, current screen resolutions, there's pixel doubling, all kinds of really cool stuff. As for Emperor, uh, aside from eBay, I couldn't find a great place to get it aside from finding old boxed copies over there or on Amazon. All right, before we get to my opinion, we've got a few emails covering kind of all the Dune games as one. To begin, another message from Alima. This one, as I said, is covering kind of her experiences with the Dune games and uh, as a whole. So she writes, Greetings, Joe and fellow blockers. Be warned, this email might be a long one, as I am a Dune nut. It's no wonder my son's middle name is Paul, never mind that it's also my grandfather's name. Like many children of the 80s and late 70s, my first exposure to the Dune universe was through David Lynch's 1984 film adaptation, which had its flaws. But anyhow, being young, I didn't understand much of what was going on, but I did learn that you shouldn't sit with your back to a door and you should walk without rhythm when in the desert. And of course, the Baron Harkonnen terrified me. When the first game came out in 1992, my sister and I played it ad nauseum. We absolutely loved it. It was a great mix of adventure and light strategy. We thoroughly enjoyed immersing ourselves in this intricate world, managing our Fremen troops, discovering Arrakis. Some parts of the game were voiced. We even had excerpts of the movie on the CD version. Some sentences are etched in our brains forever. We all like Chandy a lot. Spice is scarce around here. There's a message at the palace. And Jessica is ultimately annoying. I'm doing my best to help you, Paul, but sometimes you have to manage. A year or two later, we were at my grandparents, and my cousins had brought their Mega Drive, or Sega Genesis, uh, with, you guessed it, Dune 2. I was absolutely fascinated with the game. It was a genre I wasn't familiar with, one of the first RTSs if I'm not mistaken, and set in one of my favorite universes. I watched my cousin play for hours, because the controller was something I wasn't overly comfortable with. Of course, I always prompted him to play as Atreides, but he preferred the Harkonnen to my great dismay. The Ordos I wasn't ever fond of. They're listed in the Dune Encyclopedia, but they're never mentioned in the books. Fast forward to 1998. I'd read all six Dune books, several times I might add, and Dune 2000 was released. Obviously, I just had to own it. Although I'd never been big on RTSs, I'd skipped all the Command and Conquers, uh, I absolutely loved the game and played it several times all the way through. Always as Atreides, though. 
The game felt very familiar. It's a lot like Dune 2, if I recall correctly. The FMVs and updated graphics made it awesome, though, and it had John Rice Davies. I missed Emperor Battle for Dune since it came out the year I left for college and got kind of cut off from gaming for a few years, but I did eventually go back and play it. Can't say it left any lasting memories, though. All in all, I love the Dune games, and I still feel they're worth playing, particularly if you're into RTSs and or the Dune universe. The first game is a must, in my opinion, but of course, I could be somewhat biased. Dune 2 hasn't aged all that well, however, and might not hold up. I remember giving it a try on PlayDune.com, free and browser version, and uh, quickly moving on. Dune 2000 might be more approachable to newcomers to the series, but I'll be curious to hear what you have to say. Really looking forward to this episode. I know you won't disappoint, and I'm totally stealing this from another listener, but block on Emily. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, it's funny you say that you always played through as the Atreides. I kind of have that 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 issue as well. I always want to be the good guys. I never want to play, you know, Command and Conquer. I never wanted to play Nod. I never wanted to play the Soviets. I never wanted to play the Harkonnen. I never wanted to be... Uh, I always wanted to be Alliance until I found a really good World of Warcraft guild that made me go Horde. But, uh, you know, the Horde isn't really bad. They're just misunderstood. We'll get to that when we ever do, whenever we do Warcraft. But, um, but yeah, it's just kind of this thing where, I don't know, I mean, I'm a goody two-shoes. I, I want to be the good guys all the time. I don't want to be bad. Anyways, thank you for those memories. Really, really great. And uh, it's interesting. And I wonder... Anyone from from North America needs needs to let me know if if because for me the first Dune game, like I said last week, is something that I had never really experienced. I always thought Dune Two was the first one, and I'm not sure. I know Emily's from uh, from Europe, so maybe um, there was more marketing for the Cryo version because it's a French company. Uh, there was more marketing for it over there, but uh, yeah, let me know, guys. Let me know North Americans who played the original Dune, and uh, you know, give me some info. Next, we have an email from Father Beast, and he writes, I meant to write in when I heard you were doing a Dune episode, but didn't get to it. Then you gave me a reprieve by putting Dune 2 on the sequel podcast, and I'm jumping on it this time. I had heard of Dune 2 for a long time and was curious, partly because I had read the books, partly because it was supposed to be this great milestone in gaming history. I finally got a copy in, of all places, the CD that came with the 200th issue of Computer Gaming World. There was a lot of interesting stuff jammed in that CD. So I installed it and I didn't get it. I had never played an RTS before and I didn't know the way of things. I would typically have my construction yard make those concrete slabs, wait for each to get done, and then order buildings and wait for them. Sometimes around my third or fourth building, the enemy would show up with three or four trikes and blow me away. I didn't see the point. That is, until a couple of years later when I got the demo for Age of Empires 2, which had a tutorial included. I worked through the tutorial, which incidentally showed me how to play RTS games. And suddenly I said, hey, I've got to try this with Dune 2. I then left AoE 2 and found Dune 2 and tried it again. And it was fun. I never did get very far because I never did develop a real passion for RTS games, but it was fun for some afternoon playing. I ended up getting Dune 2000 sometime later and playing it about as much as the original. Somewhere around here I have Emperor Battle for Dune, which I got at a thrift store for three bucks, but never have installed it. So anyways, it's a fun game, and I think the original still holds up. Father Beast. Well, thanks for that, Father Beast. And, you know, I, I love I, I love your, when you send in emails specifically, because it's always interesting to hear how you come across games. I always remember you saying, you know, there's a lot of stuff from that, that demo CD that a lot of people talk about that came with that issue of Computer Gaming World. I remember you saying something about finding a game in the garbage. Uh, so it's cool hearing stories about 
you know, I, I didn't always necessarily go to the store. I had friends or I found stuff or, you know, we went to like these shady uh, software rental stores and stuff like that. So hearing these stories about weird ways that people came across games or, you know, non-traditional ways people came across games is really, really cool. So thank you again for the memories. Ah, the Upper Memory Podcast, one of the best podcasts around about geeky old-style gaming on computers. Well, we talk about old stuff as well. We talk about old classic television programs and films from around the world. So, if that's your cup of tea or coffee, then why don't you listen to us? We're called Waffle On Podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our main site, which is waffleon.podbean.com. We would be honoured if you'd join us. So, time for the verdict. Is Dune 2 fun today? Yes. Yes, it is. That is all. Show over. No, I'm joking. If you're a fan of modern real-time strategy games, the original game maintains almost all of the mechanics and tropes you have come to expect. That isn't to say you won't feel a little bit limited, though. The biggest challenge for me, as I've already mentioned, was the ability to only select a single unit at a time. That, combined with a much less responsive interface than we're used to today, did initially create a stumbling block for me. However, once I got over that, I had fun with this game. You just need to remember that everything is a little bit dumber than we're used to. Uh, You have to tell your troops exactly where to go before they attack. You have to tell your harvester to harvest every time it drops off. In a way, it's annoying. And in another way, it actually adds a bit more depth to the experience. I actually posted on Twitter in the Facebook group that I thought it might actually be interesting to see some really skilled StarCraft II esports types go back and play this and see how they do with the much more limited UI. It might be pretty interesting. Anyways, Dune 2, big recommend. Uh, I probably said that Command & Conquer was the granddaddy of RTS games. If I did in that episode, then in this one, I will say that Dune 2 is the great granddaddy of RTS games. Play it. Go to the website. You don't even have to mess around. Just play it right in the browser. If you want something a little more modern, Dune 2000, pretty good remake. It still keeps all kind of the same tropes as the original and all that stuff with uh, slightly better graphics and uh, stuff like that. You can go pick up OpenRA. It makes it pretty easy to play. All right, so that's it for another show. Before we end, I want to announce the big winner of the Wing Commander giveaway. I randomly selected someone using some random number generator I found online, and the winner is Joseph Laverne of Texas, also known as Firefox in the Tadpool. If you are a fan of Scott Johnson's The Morning Stream, you'll know about uh, about the Tadpool. Anyways, Joseph, Joe, whatever you want to be called, congratulations. Enjoy those Wing Commander games. It was really, really great to, uh, to give them away. Paul, uh, thank you very much for donating those to, to the show. And uh, you know, I hope to do some more giveaways very, very soon. Congratulations again. And for those of you who entered but didn't win, there's always next time. So that's that for the show. Thanks to everyone who contributed. I had a lot of fun over the past two shows talking Dune to the point where I am even, as I said, giving the novel another try. I do also like this system of cutting uh, some series into two shows, either when there's a logical reason to, like these two games came out at the same time by two different developers, or uh, you know if those series are really, really big. 
I do want to revisit Wing Commander one of these days to talk about the uh, the Mark Hamill FMV games and Privateer, since I only touched on the first uh, two games way back in episode two, so I think this is a really cool idea. Next time, though, you got something a little bit different. So I'm going to be traveling for the next two weeks. Next week is going to be for work, and the week after that, I will be, uh, I will be skiing. Uh, so I'm not going to have time to do all my research and all that stuff for a new show. What I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to drop... Uh, a slightly edited guest Trex and Sci-Fi show into the feed that I did back in September of 2012. It's covering uh, Star Trek 25th Anniversary and Star Trek Judgment Rights. Now, it won't be in the standard format of of the UMB cast, but it's still close enough that I think those of you who haven't heard it are going to get a kick out of it. And those of you who did hear it way back, you know, almost two years ago, may gain something else from it. Uh, I'll let you all know what the follow-on topic for the next full show is in the uh, in the outro of uh, of the next show. So as always, please, you know you guys are good at it, but I got to keep asking, send email or audio comments. I haven't gotten an audio comment in a while, so I'd love to get an MP3 attachment to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Check out the show notes for this show at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can also find the show on Steam, steamcommunity.com slash groups slash umbcast and on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast where I put up some playthrough stuff. Haven't done that in a while. I'm itching to do it again soon. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, and we will see you next time with some Star Trek here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Or do you die here? Join us.